Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. Today's episode is titled, Small Groups and Synagogues. Do small groups support Sunday services, or do Sunday services support small groups? That question is very relevant to the current concerns of many believers about Americans. That question is very relevant to the current concerns of many believers about American Christianity's practices. To find an answer, I think it's instructive to consider the Jewish religious practices that would have been familiar to New Testament authors. Do small groups support Sunday services, or do Sunday services support small groups? That question is very relevant to the current concerns of many believers about American Christianity's practices. To find an answer, I think it's instructive to consider the Jewish religious practices that would have been familiar to New Testament authors. Consider these snippets of purpose statements or descriptions of small group ministries of mainstream American churches and they're collected from a few pages of Google search results for the phrase, small group, church purpose. Sharing life through community is part of our design, but meaningful relationships aren't always easy to find. That's why small groups exist, to make these life-changing relationships relevant and accessible. If you want your church to balance God's purposes and grow in a healthy way, your small groups must lead the way. The church must provide smaller settings where relationships can grow between members so that they will be able to discover each other's needs. Only then will they be able to meet those needs on an individual level. Small groups can be also outlets for dealing with the special needs many people bring to church, so someone in need of personal attention can... Small groups are essential to the health of a church. In a small group, we can experience all six purposes of the church. Worship, evangelism, dot, dot, dot. Small groups are a great way for people to engage in biblical community by intentionally gathering regularly for the purpose of joining God's mission together. We will align the whole church family with sermon-based small groups. We will grow larger in our corporate worship and smaller through small groups at the same time. Small groups meet some of the most important needs we have. Need for spiritual growth, friendship, support, encouragement, strength, dot, dot, dot. Small groups exist as a way for people to engage in a biblical community that helps, dot, dot, dot. The purpose of an intentional faith-based small group is to build trusting relationships with God and one another. When we meet each other for conversation, dot, dot, dot. One of the primary goals that we want to live out in our small groups is strive to have a Christ-centered community, dot, dot, dot. Our church is about building the kingdom through making disciples, which means helping you become a devoted follower of Jesus. Small groups are the key to this growth process because we are created for community. Now, at first glance, all these statements share some common elements. They focus on relationship. They focus on growing Christians. They focus on meeting perceived or actual specific needs. They put that relationship in the context of an overseeing local church. Some are more focused on meeting the needs of the believers, but most include an element of growing the overall organized church itself. In a nutshell, 
they generally focus on growing the overseeing local church in size and maturity. Now, let's consider the pattern of religious services that are found in the Bible's various descriptions of worship practices, as well as many historical records. And this pattern would be familiar to those who authored the books of the New Testament. Jewish worship was essentially centered around three primary constructs, the temple, the synagogue, and the minyan. The minyan was a quorum of at least ten adult Jewish men who desired to join together to participate in religious activities. These were everyday men. It wasn't required that any of them had formal priestly credentials or any kind of training. The minyan would elect elders to supervise activities of the group. And a minion could then come together for regular fellowship, scripture reading, prayer, and worship. They would often meet three times per day. This gathering group would be called a synagogue, which met at a building also called a synagogue, at which activities were held. A priest wasn't needed for synagogue worship. Any male with appropriate education could become a rabbi or a teacher. Even visitors could participate in teaching in the synagogues, as Jesus did when he visited his hometown in Matthew 13.54 and Luke 4.16, and even in other synagogues all around the Galilee region, as described in Luke 4.14. There were typically many synagogues in a city, for example, Jerusalem had hundreds, and usually each had fairly small memberships, given the constraints of available building sizes. Note that if you search for images of synagogues today, mostly you'll find pictures that look remarkably like modern churches or even cathedrals. Even searching for something like Jesus in the synagogue, will produce many beautiful pieces of artwork showing him standing in massive temple-like buildings with high ceilings and beautiful pillars and a large podium and dozens or even hundreds of onlookers. But this was very much not the usual situation. Remember, most synagogues were quite small. The minion meeting was at someone's house. So the selected image for this post is probably representative of most real synagogues at the time. And this discrepancy between reality and traditional artwork which informs our imaginations illustrates the problem we often have with understanding the real context of the scriptures. The temple was the singular formalized place of worship in the form of sacrifices and offerings that were prescribed by the Torah. Such activities didn't take place in the synagogue. By Torah rules that the Lord had given, they could only take place in the temple. So only priests were authorized to make sacrifices and offerings. There was only one accepted temple in Jerusalem, although the Samaritans had their own temple location on Mount Gerizim. So, it's clear from the above descriptions that the vital life of Jewish religious culture existed at the synagogue level. The individual minyan groups, not the temple priests, managed each synagogue's own affairs independently, and they taught their own lessons and led their own non-temple worship. Formal temple worship led by the priest was necessary to offer sacrifices for sin, but the temple wasn't the ultimate focus of synagogue life. Rather, the temple existed as the dwelling of the Lord, and its facilities served the religious community by offering a location for that formalized worship. In fact, when the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the sacrifices for sin ended. But of course, Jewish synagogue worship definitely did not end. Now, as New Testament Christians, we of course understand that Christ became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, and he was our high priest forever. Temple worship is no longer required. Now we worship in spirit and in truth, instead of by means of animal sacrifices and offerings. We individual followers of Christ, not a building, we are the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of our Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 1 Corinthians 3.16. And according to Ephesians 2.22, 
Corporately, we're being joined together, quote, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, unquote. It's instructive to note that the New Testament doesn't say that we're a synagogue of the Lord. We're the temple of the Lord. An earthly building may provide a convenient place to join together, bringing the Lord who dwells within us into the presence of fellow believers. But it's no longer required for worship. In fact, quote, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, quote, in Hebrews 10.25, may refer as much to that spiritual corporate assembling together into Christ as much as it might refer to the meeting physically with fellow believers. Now, it's important to understand some history of the modern Christian church model. Most scholars place the true initiation of the institutionalized church with Emperor Constantine's official recognition of the Christian faith as a Roman state religion in the early 300 ADs. And this placed the church directly under the authority of the widespread Roman state, and it led to a fairly significant overhaul of church practices, including specifically the authority of church leadership over members. It's also important to note that the the word worship did not include the concept of music until the late 300s. A review of church history will also show that the development of liturgy and the associated standardization of that language of worship was related to a desire for doctrinal control by church authorities. In other words, more centralization of power. And the formalization of buildings devoted to worship began about the same time with state sponsorship that was necessary to fund those massive edifices and cathedrals. The construction of large centralized church buildings necessarily also led to a centralization of meetings. So I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that much of our modern Christian expectations of patterns of worship are based on post-Bible traditions and are not biblical as such. A review of the New Testament will find very little that looks like modern Christian worship services. This really isn't to say that our modern practices are heretical. I do not believe that they are. However, on the other hand, our modern expectations shouldn't be considered necessary for true worship, and that should include our focus on music, our liturgy, our traditional practices, our formalized buildings, our formalized authority structures, and our large gatherings. These must be held loosely as we discuss church. With this in mind, the much older Jewish model of synagogue and temple is worth considering with regard to the Christian life, as it was the foundation for the New Testament author's expectations and instruction. So returning to the list of small group purposes above, those statements generally focus on growing the overseeing local church in size and maturity. Thus, it seems to me that the inherent focus in American Christian culture seems to be supporting the local church, i.e. the institution that oversees the small groups, and providing for maintaining its facilities and programs. Most American churches largely reject any sense of government control over religion, although it's worth noting that Christian nationalists are recently insisting that the government must be explicitly Christian and must ensure correct laws and practices, in essence creating a state church once again. But even for those who disagree with the state church model, there's still a significant focus on the institution and its needs. By contrast, I think the Jewish model has the institution, or the temple, supporting the small groups, i.e. the synagogues, which were very much not institutions. The life of the church exists in those small groups, not in the large temple worship events led by priests or formalized worship teams. Institutional worship, like we do it, consisting of one or two hours once a week, 
maybe twice a week, with 30 or 45 minutes of preaching and usually a Sunday school Bible study, is hardly a way to create deep discipleship or to grow in maturity through shared life experiences and challenges, study the Word deeply together, and meet one another's personal and family needs. It can help support the community life, but it cannot be the community life on Sunday morning. In my mind, if the ultimate focus of small group ministry is on growing the Sunday morning institution, the mark has been missed. The answer to any question of structure or management or purpose or practice will always be, does this benefit the institution? If any discussion of doctrine or practice or institutional structure includes a statement like, well, this may hurt our membership numbers, or we may scare away some attendees by saying that, or that teaching would be biblical, but it would offend some members, or this may hurt our tithing, then I suggest that the focus is on the temple experience, not the synagogue life. Instead, the question ought to be this. Does this benefit the life of the church as expressed in its individual members meeting in relational small groups? Is the ultimate focus on the growth and maturity of each individual? What can the institution do to facilitate the growth of the believers, even if the institution must decrease or suffer as a result? Will the institution leave the 99 to find the one? Any vital and viable small group of believers will naturally flow and flex according to relationships and interests and passions. I maintain that trying to shoehorn people into geographical groups or overriding their existing relationships by some arbitrary grouping or ignoring their unique callings will only bring frustrations. Such pigeonholing can only serve a couple purposes as I see it, to bring uniformity to the Sunday experience or to force cross-cultural experiences onto the small group members. While cross-cultural understanding is essential, forcing it will only be harmful in the long run, and bringing uniformity to the Sunday experience seems to me to idolize temple by making it the focus of the exercise. What's best for the Sunday morning attendance is the natural result. And pigeonholing a group or mandating its membership for the sake of some institutional goal tries to make the institution's needs more important than the work that the Holy Spirit would do naturally in those existing relationships. So is it fixable? Ultimately, any discussion like this leads to questions of whether institutional church overall is the right answer. Now, if you asked a Jew of Jesus' time, is the temple an appropriate way to worship? The answer would always be, well, yes, of course it's appropriate. God told us to do it that way. Similarly, I think most modern Christians would automatically answer, well, yeah, organized churches with Sunday morning services are the right way to worship. But I don't think that's the entire answer. It's a very natural cultural understanding for an American Christian who has been conditioned their entire life to understand, quote, church, unquote, to mean some variant of a place where or a large group with whom we gather on Sunday mornings, which also oversees small group fellowships at other times. Biblically, however, quote, church, unquote, referred to the people, not a building. It was all about relationship. Unlike temple, I don't see any evidence that the Bible directs the formation and maintenance of city-scale church organizations and facilities. And I also don't see any evidence that the term pastor or bishop or overseer in the Bible, the Greek word episkopos, referred to a leader over city-size or large-size groups. Those leaders would have been understood to be overseers of relatively small groups of believers. Only the apostles were responsible for overseeing the church at large, and they were itinerant leaders. They weren't tied to a specific fellowship. 
But that doesn't negate the value of an organized legal American entity called church on its articles of incorporation that are filed with the IRS for 501c3 tax-exempt status. Modern life is much larger in scale than in biblical times, and what would have passed for a city church in Paul's day wouldn't hold a candle to a modern megachurch in sheer attendance numbers. Actually, even a small-town American denominational church of a couple hundred members is probably larger than the churches to which Paul wrote some of his letters. For example, the city church in Corinth was estimated to be less than about 150 believers by some researchers, and they almost certainly met house-to-house in small groups, not all in a single large gathering. So again, I ask, is it fixable? Well, yeah, I think it is fixable, if we refocus. There's definitely a great value in having an appropriate designated space where the synagogue-like small groups can gather for a temple-like time of sacrifice and offerings. And such spaces, the, quote, church buildings require some organization and administration to sustain them, maintain them, and serve those Sunday morning functions. They can even act as suitable spaces for the synagogue-like meetings at other times of the week. But ultimately, the very life of the city church ought to be the synagogue-like experiences. Sunday morning ought to support the small groups. Temple should support synagogue, not the other way around. I recognize that this clashes with our American understanding and certainly will be an unpopular viewpoint with most American pastors or priests. But as I've watched the ongoing process of deconstruction among many of my friends, as many believers across America are questioning the role of the institutional church in the Christian experience, I think that the temple synagogue concept might provide a model of understanding around which our institutions can reframe their thinking and their decision-making. In so doing, we may thereby address the legitimate concerns of those who are seeking a truth closer to the Bible than to our traditions. So that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.